0: i you take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. You've been a part of our church family for any time. You know, one of my favorite books to read is The Pilgrim's Progress. And if you have not read it, I think we can still be friends. But you should probably remedy that situation soon. It is one of the best pieces of Christian literature ever written. It is a book by John Bunyan. It seeks to give you an allegorical account of The life of faith and journeying from where you are now to your final destination, which is crossing the Jordan in death and entering into your eternal home in glory, the celestial kingdom. Along that allegorical story, as Christian walks along, he meets many different people and the key to understanding the allegory is to look at the names of the people and the names of the places. And as you see Christian walk along, he starts to tell the story of a man he heard about who went by the name of Little Faith, and he was from a town called Sincere. And so that there gives you an idea of who this man was. This this Little Faith was walking through a particularly treacherous treacherous, uh, stretch of the road where many people had been accosted by criminals and uh, uh, ill-minded people, and some had even died for uh, going that way. And, And as Little Faith was walking in this really treacherous part of the road, he got really tired, and and as you read Pilgrim's Progress, you need to know that that's a cue to you to, to pay attention, that something bad's about to happen, and that's a lesson to you that in the Christian life, when you get sleepy and you take rest here instead of rest in eternity, there's danger around the corner, and that's exactly what Little Faith does. He takes a rest, he falls asleep, and as he wakes from his little nap, he saw three big bruisers, Bunyan calls them, coming his way, ready to beat him up. And their names were faint heart and mistrust and guilt. And they accosted little faith. They beat him, knocked him to the ground, uh, gave him a a gashing wound on his head within an inch of his life, took all his money and rushed away. And even after this robbery and coming within an inch of his own life, he got back up and continued on his way, on his journey. This is key for us to understand the story. Why do I share that with you? Just to give you another anecdote from the program's progress, to whet your appetite to read it. We'll do that, but that's not why. I tell you this because it fits so well with what we see in John 20. You know this story. You know it really well. We've told this story to our kids from their earliest ages, right? In Sunday school, this is a popular one, Doubting Thomas. I dare say a better name for Thomas would be Little Faith Thomas, or maybe Pessimistic Faith. Thomas, or skeptical faith, Thomas. He's a man whose story is only included here in all of the Gospels, and I'm so thankful by God's kind providence that he moved by his Spirit, the Apostle John, to put it in the eternal record. It is also providential, I think, that it was after Thomas was dead that this was written down in the eternal writ. The story gives us hope that we can deal decisively with our unfettered doubts. Not only does the story of Thomas give us hope, but it also gives us a clear way to move from skepticism to resolved, resilient faith in Jesus as Lord. We see that in Thomas. We we see this movement from floundering, uncertain, pessimistic faith to a steadfast and, and resolved and ready belief. And so the question on the table for us today is how does he get there? How does he move from unbelief to belief, from pessimism to confidence. And then the question to follow that is, how do we follow in his steps? How how do we do this too? Because we're all Thomas, right? We're all this man. We all have these kinds of doubts like Thomas exhibits here. We see that the key to unlocking the prison door of Doubting Castle is Jesus himself. John 20, John the Apostle records for us in verse 24, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Greek double imperative, ou-me. I will not ever As strong as you can say it, I absolutely will not believe unless my conditions are met. Verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe or better, do not be disbelieving but be believing. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John had just told us earlier how the resurrected Jesus had appeared to the ten disciples who were gathered on Resurrection Sunday evening. The end of the day, gathered in one room, Jesus appeared. And then how Jesus commissioned them. As I was sent into the world, as my Father sent me, so am I sending you. But now John has to tell us the rest of the story. One of the disciples was missing from that experience and that conversation and that commission. And so now he has to tell us that that one was gone, and what happened with the rest of him. And this is important because, as an apostle, according to Acts one and verse twelve, he's to go in one twenty-two. Excuse me, he's to go into the world as a witness of the resurrection of Jesus. Well, how is he to go into the world as a witness to the resurrection of Jesus if he hasn't seen the resurrected Jesus? That's a, a key for the apostle to have seen. Jesus, but, but there's more to the story than that, isn't there? This isn't Jesus just checking boxes. Okay, check, Peter saw me. Check, John saw me. Check, James saw me. Check, Thomas saw me. Now they can go into the world and be my apostles. There's, there's more at stake here, isn't there? Think about this for a minute for your own edification. Of Jesus' inner disciples, of the twelve, John says clearly, the, Thomas was one of the twelve, one of the closest to our Lord, is a man, Thomas, who is deeply pessimistic and unconvinced by other people's eyewitness accounts of the resurrected Lord. He's heard the women, he's heard Mary Magdalene, he's heard Peter. Now he hears the ten other apostles saying to him, You just missed it, we just saw the Lord. And he Refuses to believe. Friend, if one of Jesus' closest disciples can struggle here, then we will struggle here, right? This skepticism is, is within his own 12. It certainly can be found in our own hearts. Thomas lacks faith. He doubts that what he's hearing about Jesus is actually true. He doubts that the one that he loved so Thoroughly and was crucified so horrifically could actually be alive again. He simply can't bring himself through the testimony of eyewitnesses to believe that Jesus is alive. Unless, unless, of course, unless Jesus appears and lets me see and touch the wounds of the nails in his hand and of the spear in his side. By the way, this is further proof for the authenticity of the Gospel of John. If, like liberal Christians will tell you, the Bible is just a bunch of made up stories by the church as they were trying to create a religion, you you don't paint your founding fathers in this light. This is a real story that truly actually happened with one of Jesus' own inner twelve. Thomas' faith is filled with skepticism and doubt. What ultimately secures His statement of faith, my Lord and my God, is that he sees the resurrected Jesus. And we're not that different from Thomas. We don't like to admit our struggles. We like to puff out our spiritual chests and walk with a a bit of spiritual boldness as though we have great and resolute faith at all times and in all problems. But in reality, we all walk with a limp. We all sometimes barely get along, actually. We all sometimes barely get out of our spiritual beds and face the day. We find often our wrestlings with the big bruisers of faint heart and mistrust and guilt have beat us down on the path again, and we're laying there bleeding, almost bleeding out. And so how is it that we handle these battles between faith and doubt? How do we gain the victory over those mangy dogs of skepticism and Pessimism and guilt, which nip at the heels of our faith and try to trip us up and tear us to pieces. Well, we must understand our struggle and see our Savior and then respond in faith. We have to understand our struggle. We see that clearly in Thomas in verses 24 to 26. He seems especially prone to this pessimistic outlook. He's a man of faith in Jesus as the Messiah, but it's a faith that's plagued by this illness of negative perspectives. He can't quite seem to kick this cancer of pessimistic outlooks. He seems to be able to find the dark cloud in every silver lining. John's the only one who who gives us the the more complete picture of Thomas, and it's a a limited picture at best, but we can gain a little bit of understanding from him. And and please know, I'm not trying to be hard on the guy. I'm trying to help you see you in the guy, because I see me in the guy. And we need to see ourselves here so we can see our only hope in Christ. I have a ton of sympathy for Thomas, and I want you to as well. There's three times we're told in John's gospel where Thomas speaks up and and says something. In John 11, you remember this account? Lazarus has died, and Jesus is beckoned by Mary and Martha to come, and he delays a few days to make sure Lazarus is dead in the tomb. And then he says, I'm going to go, and his the uh, apostles say, listen, the Sanhedrin are bloodthirsty. If you go there, you're going to die. If you go to Jerusalem, you're going to die. And Jesus says, I have to go. And so Thomas pipes up, you remember this? And he says, well, he's going to go and he's going to die. Let's go die with it. Very pessimistic, like very convinced that this is how it's going to go. We're all dead anyways. So let's just go with it. We're the walking dead. Let's just make the trip. That's his outlook on life. And then in chapter 14, you remember Jesus in the upper room is, is now teaching them and training them and giving them truth that will carry them through his absence. And he's teaching them in the beginning of chapter 14, I'm about to leave, and and when I leave, I'm going to go away to my father's house, and I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come back to you, and I'm going to take you to be with me where I am. And you know the way, he says. And Thomas pipes up again, thankful for Thomas, because he says what probably the rest of us were thinking. He says, Jesus, we we don't know where you're going, so how in the world are we going to know the way? Like you're leaving and you're never, it's very pessimistic, right? Very skeptical. You're leaving and we don't know where you're going and you'll probably never come back. You'll get there, you'll forget about us. You'll have too much fun. We'll just be here, right? We don't know how to get there. He's pessimistic in his faith. And now here in our text, he displays more of that skeptical pessimism, convinced of the death of Jesus and of the horror of crucifixion. There's no way Jesus is alive unless I see him and touch him. As Thomas has this temperament prone to doubting and pessimism, and, and let's be honest, there are some among us who have more of this temp- temperament than others. Some of you were born worry just how you were. You were you came out of the womb wondering where your next meal was going to be from and if your mom loved you. It's just part of how it is for some of you. But we all have these negative thoughts about negative outcomes and about the reality of the things we've set our faith in. But it was a besetting sin for Thomas. And when you're determined to see the the negative and and the pessimistic outcomes, you, you also will then have circumstances help you solidify your view. So if you're committed to a pessimistic view and a skeptical faith, as you think about life and God and how He cares for you, Guaranteed, you will have circumstances that will act like signs on that road leading you to unbelief. Think about that with Thomas. He's not with them when Jesus came to reveal himself to the other disciples. And then he comes, and I think John paints the picture. It's that night, because he says, then after that, eight days later, Jesus appeared to them. So the same night when Jesus appeared to the ten, Thomas enters that room. Jesus, by the way, knew Thomas wasn't in there, right? Because he knows what Thomas says when he enters the room later. So he knew Thomas wasn't there. And he appeared when Thomas wasn't there. And so you can imagine how in his pessimism, and by the way, I think probably the reason he wasn't there was related to his pessimism. I think he probably in his skepticism was was taking himself out of the gathering of the apostles. He he was delayed in getting there because he was wrestling through whether or not it was worth going. Why bother? My Savior's dead. What's the point? But finally, he brought himself to go and gather with them. And when he does, he hears news, you just missed Jesus. Of course I did. Right? That's how the skeptic would think. Of course I did. For real, Lord? This is how this is going to go? You can see how circumstances would add to his little faith, his pessimistic outlook. Notice that these small thoughts of pessimism mature quickly into... Hardened and resolved unbelief to the point that Thomas utters words which I am sure are an embarrassment to him. Were almost an immediate embarrassment to him when Jesus showed up, but were also an embarrassment to him, sanctified by Jesus, but still an embarrassment for the rest of his life. That, that out of his mouth he said, I will never believe unless I see Jesus. This is how pessimistic faith works, this is how weak faith works in your heart it puts thoughts in your mind which stew in your inner man which come out in words that that are actually pretty foolish they don't make much sense of anything but they they sound good to you in the moment cuz you're wrestling through the the pessimism and the the reality of it all and and you're skeptical and so you say things that later you regret cuz they're words of small faith as our lord appears to the 10 he does so without thomas and In so doing, I ask you why. It's similar to that delay between verses 18 and 19 where the apostles were told of the witness of the women that Jesus appeared and go to Galilee and then he waits till the end of the day to come and see them in the upper room. What was he doing? He was testing their faith. Did they believe me or not? Did they go to Galilee? No, they stayed. Then he appears to them in Jerusalem. Why, Why did he come when Thomas wasn't there? Why does he wait eight more days to come back? And that's just another way to say a week in in Jewish parlance. So it's the next Sunday night when they're gathered back in the same room and I think in worship of the crucified and resurrected Jesus. It's an establishment of a Lord's Day pattern, I believe. And he doesn't come until then. I mean, that's a week of misery for Thomas, right? A week of brewing and stewing. Why didn't I go? Why didn't I see him? Why hasn't he come? Why won't he make himself known? I must not be a good apostle. I must be less than the rest. He must not love me as much as he loves them. I must not have as much ahead of me in service to him. He hasn't shown himself to me. You can imagine in your own heart all the questions and and opposition going in Thomas' mind. Jesus is testing Thomas, isn't he? And, And in testing, he's He's building Thomas' character. He, he knows the, the nature of Thomas's heart, and he's using this delay to build into Thomas what's going to be necessary for future days. Well, while Jesus is testing Thomas, Thomas is testing Jesus, isn't he? He, he flips the script, and we like to do that when we are being tested by the Lord. We like to, to turn it around on our Lord and say, well, thanks, Lord, for the test, but if you love me, fill in the blank. That's what Thomas does to our Lord. He says, if he's really risen again, he'll he'll make himself known to me. He has thrown himself into the pit of skeptical unbelief, and he's happy to sit there in that pit until Jesus himself reaches his hand down into that pit and pulls him out. All of the disciples, however, were just like Thomas, weren't they? It's easy to take Thomas because he's the clearest skeptic in the 11. But all of them were skepti- skeptical. All of them heard the eyewitness account and they determined not to believe it. Mark tells us they, they were belligerent in their unbelief. They refused to believe what the women had told them. We don't have any record of them saying what Thomas said, but you can't, you can't have to work too hard in your mind to, to come to them saying this throughout the day on Sunday. At some point when they heard the women saying, we've seen Jesus, and he said, go to Galilee, you can almost hear them saying, at least in their mind, okay, well, he's going to have to come tell me that, right? He's going to have to appear to me and tell me that, and then I'll believe, and then I'll go. Not only that, but after John 20, would you believe this? Still within the 11, there are doubts plaguing their faith. They hadn't quite rid themselves of it, even to the point of of Jesus' ascension. My proof text for that is Matthew 28 and verse 17. It's a text of the Great Commission in which what John records Jesus saying on the night of his resurrection, Jesus reiterates and expands somewhere in Galilee, on a mountain in Galilee. And as they gather in Galilee, Jesus says, go to Galilee, go to this mountain, I'll meet you there. They go, they gather, and he comes to meet them. Now, what do you think is the temperature or the reading of the faith thermometer of the 11 when they see Jesus walking up to them on that mountain in Galilee. Now, if if you didn't know, you'd have to say it's pretty high, right? Jesus has appeared to them all. This is now the fourth appearance to them specifically. So it's pretty high, right? This is Jesus. This is the one who died, who rose again, who's soon leaving. He's our Lord and our God, right? Matthew says, even as they gathered together, Some still had doubts. Beloved, this is so encouraging to me. That even in that moment, they can be wrestling with the skeptical, pessimistic unbelief that plagues every follower of Jesus. This is you and this is me. Some of us are more prone to this pessimism and skepticism by our temperaments and by our experience but all of us wonder if this is all real at times, don't we? All of us wonder, is what I believe actually true? Is what I've staked my eternity on? Actually, cold, hard fact. Not only that, but beyond the, the reality of our salvation and those key facts of, of our rescue from sin, we, we question and doubt the very love of a sovereign God. We we're skeptical about his care for us as his children. We doubt whether or not he'll provide for us. We doubt if he'll provide for us. We do. I do. We struggle to believe, does God care? Is God able? And as we see things in the world unravel and we see nation rise against nation, and we see unsteadiness and uncertainty in our own land. We wonder, how is this all going to go? And does God have it in control? Step one out of this pit is to realize that this is the problem. Our skeptical and pessimistic unbelief often fueled by circumstances which are deemed negative in our heart. And you have to know, you don't have to live in this pit. If you're there, then understand you're there. You're not condemned for being there. Thomas was there. He's one of the 11. He was with Jesus for three and a half years. And even after that, he finds himself there. If you're there, you're there. Understand it and confess it and admit it. But no, you don't have to stay there. The door of Doubting Castle does not have to remain locked. That is not a prison cell you have to live in. You have the golden key wrapped around your neck, and that golden key is Jesus. And I don't mean to make him a commodity that which we, we wield to get us a victorious faith. I just mean to say he's the answer. He frees us from all these doubts and pessimistic outlooks. So see our Savior. That's what Thomas did. He's met in his unbelief by the, the risen Christ, and everything changes. Everything changes. After eight days of wondering and questioning and every rabid thought running through his mind, now Jesus appears. As they gather in the upper room, the same place Jesus had appeared a week before, on this following Sunday, Thomas is with them, which is in itself a statement. However it was, he was wrestling with his doubt. He was determined to be with God's people. I don't mean to make too much of this and read into the text too much, but I think I can support it from other texts like Hebrews 10. That God meets us when we gather with His people. And when we are struggling through our doubts and our pessimism of faith and our outlook on life, that is especially when we need to be gathered with Christ's people, expecting Him to show up, to make Himself known revealing His glory through the preaching of the Word, through the singing of the Word, through the praying of the Word, through the fellowship of the saints around the Word. This will bolster our weak and little faith. This will build it up and make it ready for another week. This is where Thomas would meet the risen Christ. I want to commend to you the practice of gathering with The Lord's people in those moments of doubt and struggle, I think we're most tempted to think I just need to pull away. I need to figure this out. I need to close myself off until I get this wrestled through and worked out and and can be strong enough to engage with it. No, no, no. that's exactly when you need to be with Christ's people. And we need to have room in our body, and, and we do. It's commendable, but we need to make more room for those who are skeptically working through things whether salvation or sovereignty issues. And know that they are loved and and will find the love of Christ from us as we put our arm around them and walk with them through the treacherous parts of the journey. It's this gathering of Christ's people that helps Thomas. Jesus comes to Thomas. Notice how he approaches him. It's a a movement from peace to proof, to reproof. So he comes to Thomas in, in his unbelief, but he doesn't run him down. He doesn't belittle him in front of the other Disciples. Rather, he comes once again in peace to him. He said it twice in the the first appearance. Now he comes back and he says it again to all of them, but especially to Thomas. Peace be with you. Everything else he's going to say, everything else he's going to do with Thomas is built on the foundation and is flowing out of the fountain of peace that he has secured for Thomas through his sacrifice and his resurrection. This is a moment filled with fear, as you can imagine. This is not an appearance you're expecting, right? You're you're in a room that's locked. Nobody nobody just appears in a room that's locked in a normal circumstance. Now here comes Jesus appearing in a supernatural, immortal way, coming into the midst of them. And in that way, he strikes fear in their hearts. But not only that, he he says to Thomas, put your finger into my wounds and and on my hands and, and in my side. In other words, Jesus knew every detail of what Thomas had said a week before, though Jesus wasn't there. That should strike fear into your heart, you pessimistic little faith Christian, right? If you're Thomas, you like, oh man, he hurt that? Stink, what am I going to do now? Like this is a moment of, tem- of tremendous, intense fear for Thomas, and yet it is a moment of peace from our Lord. He comes in peace, and then he moves to proof. He shows off his crucified, resurrected body. He tells him not just to look, but also to put his finger in the wounds. We don't know if he did or not. The, the text doesn't say. John doesn't say, did Thomas actually reach out and, and touch Jesus? Most commentators honestly say no. That the sight of Jesus was enough for Thomas. I think that's reading to the text. I think Thomas touched him. I don't know why, I just do. First John 1 1, John says that we saw him and beheld him and handled him. And certainly Thomas could have done that another time. But I think in that moment, he obeyed our Lord and touched his body and saw the scars now healed through resurrection. And in this moment, he's moved from from peace by proof to faith. He's now sure this was no ghost or spirit or apparition that the other disciples saw. Jesus essentially says to Thomas, listen, Here's the receipts. The work is done. Don't be disbelieving, but be believing. This proof then is bolstered with that word of reproof. He says to Thomas, stop it. Stop your unbelieving and foster your belief. I've met the demands of your wavering faith, Jesus is saying. I've I've answered all your questions. I've condescended to your weakness. I've extended my compassionate hand to you in this pit of of pessimism. Take my hand, Thomas. Rise with me and walk in faith. That's where everything changes for Thomas. He's no longer disbelieving or doubting Thomas. He now is believing Thomas. His pessimism and his skepticism are given a decisive blow. They're they're KO'd in the ring of wrestling faith. And the decisive blow is the appearance of our resurrected Lord. Friend, this is your only hope. This is your only hope in the pit of your pessimistic skeptical faith. The hope is not in you to stir up enough faith. The hope is not necessarily even in apologetic evidence. So that is necessary and meaningful. That's only helpful if it brings you to Jesus. Because He is your only hope. To know and see and believe that He rose from the grave. The wonderful difference between you and Thomas is that you don't have to sit around and wait for Jesus to come to you. You can seek Him constantly in His Word. For as Paul will say in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. We're different than Thomas. For Thomas, seeing was believing. For you, believing is seeing. You need to have faith in what God has said and has given you the proof and the receipts for in His Word. Is exactly what happened and seeing it by faith, believing in it and having eternal life. This is what is moved to in Thomas's heart. He's responding then in faith in verses 28 and 31. Seeing the Savior, he's moved to resolute faith. This is the antidote to our struggling faith to see our Savior, to have our eyes linger on his wounds, to have the eyes of our hearts touch the wounds of the nail and of the spear in his side. And when we do, we can't help but declare with Thomas, my Lord and my God. Thomas had doubted if Jesus crucified so horrifically could actually rise from the dead, seeing and touching him, convinced him. Not only that he had risen from the dead, but that by rising, get this, by rising he proved he is exactly who he said he was. And he says that in that short and pregnant statement, my Lord and my God. He does not just say, I believe you rose from the dead. He sees in the resurrection of Jesus proof that Jesus of Nazareth, a man undeniably so, was also Lord and God. By confessing my Lord, he is saying to Jesus, you are worthy to sit on the throne of my heart. By confessing my God, he is saying, Jesus, you are worthy to sit on the throne over all of the universe. You have proven through your resurrection that you are both Lord and God, both my Lord and my God. This is the climactic confession of John's gospel. This is, if you would like to think of it, the the climax of the book. Everything ascends and descends from this point in in some sense. Because John has written to tell us that Jesus is who he said he was, that we might believe. And here Thomas says, I believe my Lord and my God. And notice that the strongest statement of faith in all of the Gospels comes out of the mouth and out of the heart of the strongest skeptic in all of the Gospels. That, my friend, is grace. That is the mercy of God. That shows you that there is hope for you where you struggle and wrestle with doubts, you too can have them resolved in Christ and you with him, with Thomas, can say, my Lord and my God. Only God would pursue and preserve a man like Thomas and from his mouth produce this confession. This is the climactic confession of John's gospel because Jesus follows this up with a a blessing on all who believe when they haven't seen. And then John follows it up and says, that's why I'm writing because I want those who won't see you to believe in Jesus, and by believing to have life in His name. Thomas was brought from skepticism and pessimism by seeing the resurrected Lord. We have to be brought from skepticism and pessimism by hearing about our Lord in the Word of God. Our faith is no longer built on experiences and personal revelations. Our faith is now built upon the living, written, settled, eternal word of God. This testimony is sufficient and abundantly full of proof to secure our faith. And John says in verses 30 and 31 that he recorded these things so that we may know. And he recorded many signs of, of Jesus, but he didn't record them all. But he's going to tell us in 21, 25 that if you were to write down all the things that Jesus said and did, not even the world could contain all the books that would be written. Of the gospel records, all four of them, there's about 36 signs, miraculous works of Jesus that are recorded. John records seven of them for us in his gospel. So in other words, he's carefully curating these seven to make the case for Jesus as the Son of God, as the promised one of the Old Testament. Now, do you remember these signs? I'm going to run through them quickly, stick with me and re-engage. John 2, 1-11, through 11, he goes to the wedding at Cana, a family wedding. is beseeched by his mother. They're running out of wine. Do something. He takes water pots that were for purification rites, and he tells servants, take those pots and fill them with water. And then that water, he turns miraculously into the, the best wine, the, the greatest wine they had yet tasted. And by so doing, this first sign, he shows that the old ways of purification are replaced by a new one, a new way, this Jesus of Nazareth. And he shows them that eternal satisfaction and joy are found not in the old wine of an old system, but in the new wine that Jesus brings through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. In chapter four, the end of chapter four, Jesus heals that official's son, the one who came to him and said, please heal my son. And and he says, your faith has made him well. And he sends him on his way. And then he gets back to the house and finds out that he was healed the very same hour he talked with Jesus. That sign proves that salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone. There's no other way to have all that ails you healed than in Christ our Lord. And then chapter 5, right after that, he heals the paralytic man in Jerusalem who's sitting by the pool waiting for someone to put him in the waters when they're stirred, supposedly by the Spirit of God. He does it on a Sabbath day, so that he can prove by his sign that he, Jesus, is greater than Moses and greater than Sabbath keeping and greater than law keeping, and he can heal by the power of his word. And all who are broken and all who are invalid, both in body and soul, can be healed and made perfect in him alone. And in chapter six, he feeds the five thousand near the Sea of Galilee, the hungry crowd who are out listening to him and are without a meal and. From five loaves and two fish, he feeds them abundantly, supplies for them, and shows them that he himself is the great provider and he himself is the bread of life. That if they would but believe in him, they would have eternal satisfaction, eternal nourishment of body and soul. Chapter 6, he walks on water on the Sea of Galilee after the feeding of the 5,000 meets his disciples on the water. As he walks without a boat, he shows his power over all creation. Proves he is more than just the son of, of man, little M, but he is the son of man, big M. He is God in the flesh, ruler of creation. Chapter nine, he, he comes to the man born blind in Jerusalem and heals him and, and shows through that he alone can give physical and spiritual sight to those who are blind. And those who can see with their eyes don't necessarily see with their hearts what is actually true. He shows that He alone is the sight giver. Then in chapter 11, He comes upon the scene of Lazarus in the tomb for four days to the point where He stinks and no one doubts He's dead. Tells Him to open the tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth, proving that He, Jesus, is the resurrection and the life. That if you believe in him, though you die, yet you shall live. Case in point Lazarus of Bethany. And now, Thomas, at the end of the book, has seen the greatest sign of all this Jesus of Nazareth, crucified on a Roman cross, dead beyond doubt, now raised by the power of his own essence. Death and the grave could not hold him, and he now stands alive before Thomas. And Thomas confesses, my Lord and my God. And this brings the book full circle, doesn't it? Because in John 1, John in the prologue, before he got to the details of the life of Jesus, said there is one coming who has come. He was the Word, and he was, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this Word came to tabernacle among men, John 1.14. To live and dwell among us so that, verse 18, he could reveal God to us, make God known to us, and redeem us to God. Make peace with God for sinners by the sacrifice of himself. And now at the end of the book, Thomas says, I believe. My Lord and my God. So friend, do you believe? Do you believe this? Is Jesus all that John has clearly said he is, co-equal, co-eternal, co-existence with God, the one who came and gave his life as a ransom for your sin? Do you believe this? This resolute faith provides yet further proof of the deity of Jesus this moment between Jesus and Thomas obliterates the heresy of Arianism, which we see in today's cults like Jehovah's Witnesses. We would like to tell you that Jesus was a created son of God the Father. But what happens here in John 20 when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, is that Jesus receives his confession and says to him, essentially, well done, but better are those who've not seen and believed. Now that's something because there's lots of other instances in Scripture where men are worshipped as God and they correct the people worshipping them. So in Acts 10, Peter goes to Cornelius. Cornelius has called for him, wants him to preach the gospel to him. When Cornelius sees Peter, he falls at his feet. you remember what Peter says in Acts 10? Get up, I'm a man just like you. Don't worship me. And later in Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas are in Lystra, and in Lystra they've done a, a miraculous sign, and, and now everybody's sure that these are gods and not men, and they start kind of a, a rally around this idea, and they start cheering these men as gods. And you remember what they did? Stand back and receive it? Of course not. They tore their clothes, and they said, listen, we're of, of like nature like you. We're men like you are. Do not worship us. And then the John who wrote this text and. Revelation 22, at the end of the book, the big book, the end of it all, he received the revelation from the angel. He's showing him all these wonderful things. He writes in the book of Revelation. Comes to the end and John, like you and I would, falls down at the angel's feet to worship him because he's just so overwhelmed by what he's seen. Remember what the angel says? No, no, no. I'm a servant like you. Worship God. That's what Jesus is saying by receiving this worship. Worship God, and you are right now. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. You know the rest of the story for Thomas? Have you heard a little bit about church history, this skeptical man who seemed to struggle with bouts of little faith? What happened with this man? Well, Scripture doesn't tell us, but early records of church history give us a lot of evidence but he actually went to one of the farthest places on the planet from Jerusalem at that time, inhabited by others, and that was India. Church history would tell us that he arrived there in the early 50s and professed and proclaimed his testimony of Jesus until A.D. 72, so about 20 years of ministry in India. There's churches in India, by the way, who still trace their heritage and their earliest histories to the testimony of Thomas, His image is still printed on currency that's still distributed in the land. He has a long and storied history with these people. There's a hill in the land which is said to be the place where he was buried. You see what this resurrected Jesus and this interaction with Thomas did to Thomas? It turned him into a faithful witness who stood firm even in the face of death. There's good evidence that Thomas was martyred for his faith. There's actually really good evidence that he was speared to death for his faith. That's a a divine irony, isn't it? That the man who said in the upper room, I'm not going to believe unless I can put my hand in the mark where the spear entered my Lord's body, would at the end of his life stand firm in his faith, in this Jesus, who he is convinced is his Lord and his God and is willing to take the spear for the sake of the name of Christ. Now does that mean that Thomas from this point forward was a lion for the faith? Never met a moment or an opponent that rattled him? Never saw any more dark clouds to his experience? Never saw any tunnels on the journey? Of course not. I am sure by normal human experience, that that man laid awake at night, wondering whether or not he was loved by God. Where where am I, Lord? I'm in faraway India. What am I doing here? I am sure he struggled to believe if he was fit for this ministry. I'm sure he wrestled with God, asking Him, Why am I here? Is what I saw and heard actually true? I'm sure he struggled to believe that God actually loved him and would work it out as God had said he would. That was his besetting sin to have little faith. But that little faith now had a sure antidote. And that was his resurrected Lord. And so I point you this morning to that same Jesus. And friend, it might not be about your faith if it is about your salvation and the the rescue of your soul from sin then I beg you to look upon the wounds of our Lord and to see that, that His shed blood is enough to save you from your sin. And you must, by faith, receive that to be true. But brother or sister, that's not the only doubt we wrestle with, is it? You're likely, in this moment, even wrestling with the providence of God in your life. Why this or why that? Does God care? Does He love me? All those questions that plague us and force us to skepticism and pessimism. I say the same thing to you, I say to the unbeliever, and that is to gaze again on the wounds of our Lord. If you doubt His love for you, look upon the scars in His hand and in His side. If you doubt if He's going to bring it all to the end that He's promised and, and fulfill all that He has said, look at the wounds in His hands and His side. How it began guarantees how it's going to end. Christ will have the victory. So you must understand your situation. See your Savior and stand firm in faith. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for your word. Clearly written, delivered and preserved by your spirit to us today. We ask that you would help us to see the needs of our own hearts and the wrestlings of our own soul addressed in this account of Thomas. And Father, we pray that you would turn our eyes afresh to our Lord and Savior, to Jesus the Christ. And would you assure us yet again that he is indeed our Lord and our God. Would you help us to leave here, bolstered in our faith, ready by your kindness to face all that you bring in the week to come. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.